Let's jump into the message today. Again, this is uh, the last week of You Asked For It. This was a number of cards were turned in, and people wanted to message on hell. They want to know, you know, is hell real? We, we, we hear a lot about, you know, hell, heaven, hell. Uh, what is it? Where is it? What's it like? Is it real or is it fake? Is it just kind of a, a myth created to scare people, to serve Jesus? What is hell all about? And so what I want to do today is I know this is controversial in some circles, and I know it's definitely not pleasant uh, it's not socially acceptable to talk about hell a whole lot anymore. People would like to just kind of ignore it and act like it doesn't exist. Let's deal with everything else in the Bible and just kind of ignore this. But I think we do ourselves a disservice when we uh, choose to ignore portions of Scripture because it just doesn't suit our preference or doesn't, you know, it's, it's just not pleasant to us. So we're going to just take an honest, hard look at what does the Bible actually say about hell. And to begin, I want to set the stage with John chapter 3, 16. This is one of the most famous Bible verses in the world. You see the reference at NFL football games. You see it on the bottom of In-N-Out Cups. It's just one of the famous scriptures of the world. And it says, for God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. You know, the word that I don't think we ponder on enough, and it's the word that gives the entire verse meaning, is the word perish. The reality is it wouldn't be love for God to send his son if there wasn't something to be avoided. If there, was, if there wasn't something for Jesus to save us from, then why would we say Jesus saves? Like, what is he saving us from if there was no hell? If there wasn't the word perish... Why would there be love for God to send his son? If if nothing was going to happen when you died, then it wouldn't be love for God to send his son. But the reality is there is the word perish in the verse. And we're going to look at today what that word actually means. You know, a question I'm asked often as a pastor is this question. How could a loving God send anyone to hell? If God is so loving and God is loved, then how could a loving God send a human being to hell? Well, the question that I ask in return is, why would a loving God force someone into heaven? Have you ever thought about it this way? If you don't want a relationship with God, you don't want to know him, you don't want to be a part of his family, how could a loving God then kidnap you and force you to live forever with him in heaven when you want nothing to do with him? See, the reality is God gives each and every one of us free will. He gives each and every one of us a choice, and he will not impose himself upon your free will. Now, he will appeal to you with everything he has to choose, but he will not force you into making this decision. So the question that I really can't answer, especially in light of the fact that God is a just God, nobody will ever stand before him without the opportunity to choose him. I know a question a lot of people say, well, what about these remote tribes in the jungles of Africa or or Central America, tribes that have never had a Christian missionary, tribes that have never heard the gospel? Are they going to die and go to hell when they never had a chance? Well, the reality is, if you study archaeology and you study missiology, 
Nobody will ever die without an opportunity to receive Christ. God is a just God. He will never allow anybody to stand before him if they did not get the opportunity. That's why when you study missiology, you look at like Pacachuti and the Incas in Peru, they had the story of Christ long before missionaries ever got there. How? God will reveal himself to all people. God will reveal himself to all tribes and all cultures. God is a just God, and he will not allow anybody to stand before him without giving them the opportunity. So here's the question that I can't answer, is how could anybody reject a loving God? In light of who God is, in light of what God has done on our behalf, how could anybody reject a loving God? So the title of today's message is simply a tough message, because it is. It is a tough message. This is not pleasant to talk about. It's a very difficult message to deliver. It's a very difficult message to speak on. I believe it was difficult for Jesus to talk about this. Uh, I believe it was hard for Jesus to talk about hell. But when you study Jesus' ministry, he preached on hell 33 times in a three-year period. Like If you went to Jesus' church, he was preaching on hell at least once a month for a three-year period. So if you didn't like messages on hell, you would have hated going to Jesus' church because he, he dealt with us a lot. And the question is why? Why would Jesus speak about hell so much? I believe it's because he didn't want anybody to go there. I believe Jesus was filled and motivated by compassion and wanted to give people every opportunity possible to not choose hell. See, here's the reality. God chooses every human being. But the only ones who escape hell and go to heaven are those that choose God. See, God chooses everybody. But to be saved, you have to choose him back. So the Bible speaks on hell 167 times it talks about hell. Many popular preachers today and theologians and, and even many scholars today are now distancing themselves from a literal hell. A recent survey found that 35% of Baptists do not believe in a literal hell anymore. 58% of Methodists do not believe in a literal hell. 54% of Presbyterians do not believe in a literal hell, the existence of hell. 60% of Episcopalians do not believe in the existence of hell. I read a stat the other day that 71% of Bible theology students in eight leading seminaries in America, 71% do not believe in the literal existence of hell anymore. Here's my thought. If you don't believe in hell, then you can't believe in heaven. Because the same book teaches us about both. The same Lord Jesus teaches us about both. So for me, to deny the existence of hell is to deny Jesus himself. To deny John 3.16. John 3.16 doesn't apply unless there's the word perish, unless there's something to be avoided. It makes no logical sense for a loving God to send his son to be crucified and to die if there wasn't something horrible to be avoided. So there are four groups out there who deny a literal existence in hell. First group is atheists. Atheists are people who do not believe in God. Theist is God. A is, is the anti, I do not believe in God. So they do not believe in God, which means they don't believe in heaven and they don't believe in hell. An atheist is somebody who does not believe in God. Here, here's my take on it. I don't believe in atheists. I believe it is scientifically impossible to be an atheist. If you study science and knowledge, scientists say the smartest human being to ever live on the face of planet Earth will only ever possess 2% of all known knowledge. That's it, 
All languages, all arts, all math, all technology, all science, the smartest human being will only know 2% of, of all knowledge. So you have to ask the person in the 98% of stuff you don't know, is there a remote possibility that a God exists? Well, mathematically there is. So the reality is it is impossible scientifically to be an atheist. Now you can be an agnostic. An agnostic is someone who simply says, I don't know. Gnostic is, uh, comes from the Greek word gnosko, to know. Ag is the antithesis of. So it's, I don't know whether or not there's a God. Well, truth is I do, and, and, I, and I love telling you about him every week. Because there is a God. You know, Psalm 14.1 says, only a fool says there is no God. The other group that doesn't believe in a literal hell is annihilationists. Annihilationists believe that, you know, Christians go to heaven and then everyone else is just simply destroyed. They, they cease to exist. And they build the doctrine out of Matthew 10.28, taking it out of context. It says, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both body and soul in hell, the problem is you can't take one verse, you can't cherry pick one verse out of the Bible and build an entire doctrine around it. You've got to take the entire Bible as a whole. And if you take the Bible as a whole, you realize this can't stand uh, with what they say it means when you take the Bible as a whole. They're taking it out of context. That's the problem. Here's the next group. The next group is ultimate reconciliationists. They believe that ultimately everybody will be reconciled to God. So you go to hell uh, based on how bad you are. That, that determines how long you go to hell. So the worse you are, the longer you stay in hell, and eventually, over time, you'll pay off your debt, and you're reconciled to God. They actually believe that Satan himself will ultimately be reconciled to God, that it's not a forever eternal place, but will ultimately be reconciled to God. And then the fourth group are universalists. Universalists are now becoming more and more popular uh, in America today. A lot of popular preachers writing books about this, talking about, you know, when Jesus, they take the question, how could a loving God send someone to hell? And they twist it out of context. And they basically say that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for everybody's sin. All of mankind was paid for when he died on the cross, which is true. See, we know that nobody will ever go to hell because of sin. Nobody, like people all the time say, well, he's a sinner, he's going to hell, or I'm a sinner, I'm going to hell. Nobody will ever go to hell because of sin, because Jesus paid for all sin once when he died on the cross. So all sin's been paid for. See, what, what universalists get wrong is they take free will out of the equation. That yes, your sin has been paid for, that is a gift that God has given you, but if you don't receive the gift, it doesn't apply to you. God will not impose that gift on your life. You have free will to say yes to the gift, and you have free will to reject the gift. See, what universalists do is say everyone, Adolf Hitler, when he died, if he didn't repent and give his life to Jesus Christ, he immediately went to heaven. That's what universalism believes. It means ISIS, who's slaughtering and killing and torturing people and Christians. If a member of ISIS in the middle of killing a Christian dies without ever repenting, without ever asking Jesus to be his Lord, without ever seeking forgiveness, the moment he dies, he goes to heaven and spends eternity with God. Now, that's foolish to believe. That's foolish to believe. See, the reality is God chooses everyone. But the only people who make it choose him, choose him. So I want to give you a story from Jesus, uh, Luke chapter 16. And let me say a couple things before we read this. This is not a parable. I know in some 
translations of the English Bible, it says the parable of the rich man in Lazarus. This is not a parable. This is a true story. And, and all theologians agree this is a true story. Why? Because when Jesus told a parable, it says Jesus told this story. The beginning of this, it simply says Jesus said. Jesus said, this is not a simile. He wasn't saying this is what the kingdom of God is like. And the other reason we know this is a true story and not a parable is because Jesus uses somebody's specific name. Jesus never used a specific name in a parable. He always used kind of a, a guy, a rich guy, a farmer, a planter. He never called somebody specifically by name. So that's why it's a true story. It's not made up. It's a true story. So let's look at this. Jesus said, There was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus. So right there, you've got somebody's specific name. Now, this is not the Lazarus who was raised from the dead. Lazarus was a very common name, like the name John. And so he's talking about an actual person that lives. So this is a true story, who is covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. Let me ask you a question. Was Abraham a real person? Yes or no? Yes, Abraham was a real person. Again, this is a true story. The rich man also died and was buried, and his soul went to the place of the dead. The word dead is the Greek word Hades, which is literally translated hell. A lot of translations today, you know, we don't like to use the word hell anymore because it's offensive. So instead, many translations will use the word dead, but this is actually the Greek word hell. They are in torment. And I want you to see this word torment because you'll see uh, four variations. It's two Greek words, torment, anguish. Jesus is trying to describe what this place is going to be like for people who go there. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. And again, The word flames, Jesus used that word very specifically because he wants to end the debate that hell is a place of fire. A lot of people say hell is just some waiting room. Hell is a place of fire, it's a place of torment, and it's a place of anguish. But Abraham said to him, son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. I'll talk about that a little bit later. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. The rich man said, then please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home, for I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen even if someone rises from the dead. And somebody did rise from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead, and yet still people don't believe. So in this passage, Jesus ends the debate on a literal existence of hell. He ends the debate on whether or not it's going to be a place of torment and anguish, and he ends the debate on whether or not it's going to have flames and fire involved. 32 times the New Testament refers to hell as a place of fire. 19 times Jesus refers to hell as a place of fire. Let's look at these these words, 
torment and anguish. The word torment is the Greek word basanos. Jesus used this word very specifically. This was such an intense, terrifying word that they actually named a device of torture after this word. They just gave the, the, the torture rack this word, the rack or instrument of torture. Torture, torment, acute pains. The fire hot enough to melt metals. That's what the word basanos means, the torment. Then there's the word adoneo, which is the word anguish, which means to cause intense pain, to be in anguish, be tormented, to torment or distress one's self. These are the words Jesus used to describe what it's going to be like in hell. And he describes to us very real people, a very real human being who lived on earth, who was in hell and what they were experiencing. And in this story, Jesus shows us three things that will happen to people in hell. Three things. The first off is they will desire comfort. People in hell will desire comfort. Luke 16, 24. Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip just the tip of his finger. Notice he doesn't say bring a glass of water, a bucket of water. He's in such agony. He says, just a, just a tip of the finger, just a drop of water on my tongue. Just give me a moment of reprieve. See, what you have to realize is that hell was not created for human beings. God never intended human beings to go to hell. It was never designed for human beings. But because of man's rejection of God and man's unwillingness to receive the gift of God, hell had to be enlarged out of necessity, but it was never by design. In fact, the design of hell in Matthew 25, the king will turn and say, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal Fire. Now, the word eternal in the Greek means forever. This, this, this kind of destroys the annihilationist theory that hell is not forever. It is forever. It is eternal. Eternal fire prepared. Now, who is hell designed for? The devil and his demons. It was never designed for us. But unfortunately, we know through Scripture that human beings, out of their rejection of the gift of God, will end up in this place, and so it had to be enlarged. See, here's the thing. God never created hell for human beings. In fact, God created heaven. John 14, there is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? See, Jesus is preparing a place for us, heaven. That's his goal for every human being. Again, God's will is that no human being ever go to hell. God chooses every human being. But unfortunately, the only ones that make it are the ones that choose him in return. Here's the second thing that happened to people in hell. They will express concern. On earth, they're not really that concerned about evangelism. They're not really that concerned about sharing you know, the gospel of Jesus with others. When, you, when people get to hell, they're going to become very, very concerned about evangelism. Very, very concerned that their friends and their family hear about Jesus. This is going to become a very big issue for them. Look at the rich man. The rich man said, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home. For I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. You see, he's very motivated now about the gospel. The reality is there are probably people in hell right now saying to themselves, I hope this year is the year that Bill tells my children about this place. I hope this is the year Mary tells my sister about this place. And then I wonder if they're going to have this thought, you know, Bill's probably not going to tell my kids. He never told me. 
He never told me. Mary's probably not going to tell my sister. She never told me. You know, we argued about who I voted for, but not once did she ever tell me about this place and that I could have easily avoided it. Here's the third thing that will happen with people in hell. They'll seek consolation. They'll look for an excuse. They'll look for a reason. They'll want to justify. Why? The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, if someone is sent to them from the dead, if somebody will rise from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and they will turn to God. Well, Abraham goes on to say, listen, they've got Moses and the prophets. What does that mean? Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. The prophets, major and minor, basically wrote the rest of the Old Testament. Moses or Abraham saying, listen, they have the Bible. They can read the Bible. And he's saying, no, no, no. If someone rises from the dead, Moses says, listen, if the Bible isn't enough, then even if somebody raises from the dead, it's still not going to be enough. And in fact, somebody did. And let me say this about this story. This story is not the eternal hell. We know that there's a temporary hell that the Bible talks about. And then there's the eternal hell, the lake of fire, which, which the Bible calls the second death, the second hell. So right now there's a waiting place of hell. And there is a future eternal hell. And so what, what it's describing right now, what many theologians believe, is, is before the resurrection of Christ, there was the lower depths which part of the lower depths was the current hell. That's where people in hell are right now. There was this great chasm. And on the other side of the chasm, there was the waiting place for the saints, all of the Old Testament saints. And theologians call that area Abraham's bosom. And that was the waiting place before the resurrection. And that wasn't a place of torment or anguish. It was on the other side of the chasm that the flames, the torment, and the anguish was going on. That's why when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says that he ascended into the depths, or he descended before he ascended. So he descended, he got the keys of hell and death, he took all of the Old Testament saints from their waiting place, from Abraham's bosom, brought them to paradise, which is kind of the temporary heaven until we get to the new earth, the future heaven. We've talked about that in previous series here. And so that's kind of a description of what's going on. So you've got, you've got the Abraham's bosom, that was the waiting place for the saints before the resurrection. You have the, the current waiting place of hell. And then there's the future hell or the eternal hell, the second death, the lake of fire the Bible talks about. And let me, let, me, let me give you some descriptions of what the eternal hell, the forever hell is going to be like. There are two physical properties that keep us mentally stable on earth that do not exist in eternal hell. Two physical properties that keep you as a human being mentally stable that will not be in the eternal hell. The first one is light. There will be no light in hell. It'll be a place of total darkness. And and we all need light. We need light to be able to function. We need light to be able to see. Even blind people use light. They can feel it on their skin. They know if they're walking into a, a dark room or a room that's lit. So even blind people need light. Well, the Bible describes the eternal hell in Matthew 8. It says they'll be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we'll come back to that statement in a moment. But this outer darkness in the Greek means total blackness. You won't be able to see it. I don't know if you've ever experienced total blackness. When I was in elementary school growing up in Texas, they took us to the caves of Sonora. And and you go down into these, these caverns under the earth. And there was one part of the tour when we were down in these caverns where they would turn the light off and it was pitch 
that. You could not see your finger an inch in front of your eyeball. It was total blackness. And I, can't, I remember as a child how, how vivid it was. That, that it was disorienting. You felt nauseous. You lost your footing. You didn't know if you were standing up or standing to the side. It, it, was, just the, 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 it was a sick feeling to, to, to stand there in total blackness and total darkness. You know, so many people think, well, hell's going to be this great party with all my friends. No, in hell, you'll never see anybody. You'll never see anybody. It'll be utter darkness, utter, uh, utter blackness. You'll never talk to anybody. Remember Luke chapter 16, that was before uh, the resurrection. So the only reason they were talking to people is because there was the chasm with all of the saints and, and they could see across the chasm in eternal hell, it's going to be utter darkness. You won't be able to see a thing. And the reason there's no light in hell is because God's presence is not there. See, the only reason there's a light in heaven, it's not because there's a sun, S-U-N, it's because there's a sun, S-O-N. The Bible tells us Jesus is the light of heaven. His presence literally illuminates heaven. The second physical property that will not exist in the eternal hell, which keeps us stable as human beings, is solid. Solid. In hell, you'll never feel anything, you'll never touch anything, you'll never stand on anything, you'll never grab anything. All throughout the Bible, uh, all, all throughout Revelations, Revelations 9, 11, 17, 20, it talks about hell as a bottomless pit. A bottomless pit. It's a sensation of falling that never ends. Why do you think people have nightmares of falling? They wake up and they're falling and they can't stop themselves from falling. It's a bottomless pit. You'll never feel anything. You'll never touch anything. You'll never grab on to anything. Those are two physical properties that keep us stable that will not exist in eternal hell. Let's talk about two emotional properties that keep us stable, mentally stable on earth that, that will not exist in the eternal hell. The first one is rest. Rest. And you say, well, rest is a physical property, but it's also an emotional property because if you don't get rest, you get grumpy. Like, that's why we need naps. That's why we need to sleep at night. Without rest, we get, like, you know, we, we get emotionally crazy if we don't get enough rest. It is an emotional property. Well, Revelations 14.11 says, The smoke of their torment, again, talking about eternal hell, will be a place of torment, will rise. And how long is this going to be? Forever and ever. Forever and ever. So this is not going to end. And they will have no relief day or night. They will never be relief. This is not going to end. They're never going to have a break. They're never going to have a timeout. They're never going to have one moment. This is going to be torment that endures forever and ever. The second emotional property that will not exist in the eternal hell is hope. Hope. There will be no hope in hell. As long as you're on earth, there's hope. As long as you're alive, there is hope. See, what suicide is, is suicide is when Satan convinces somebody on earth that a property of hell is true on earth. See, in hell, there is no hope. On earth, there's always hope. There's always hope. But eventually, every person in hell will have this thought. When I've been here 10,000 centuries, I will not have one less second to be in this place. Because there's no hope in hell. And Jesus did something very unique when he taught on hell. Jesus used a specific Greek word that no one had ever used before. 
Jesus was the first one and the only one to use a particular Greek word to describe hell. And he always used it in conjunction with weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the Jewish people of this time period would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. He used the Greek word Gehenna. The Greek word Gehenna literally translated Valley of Hinnom or in the Greek Valley of Henna. Well, the Valley of Hinnom is right. This is a photo that I, I took when we were standing on the southern steps of the Jerusalem temple in, in, in the old city. This is the Valley of Hinna or Hinnom. In this valley, it's right in, in downtown Jerusalem, right on the south side of, of the old city. During Jesus' time period and before, there was a continual fire burning in this valley. They would burn all the trash and the refuge of the city. Uh, poor people that couldn't afford a proper burial, they would burn their bodies. So there was this stench of, of, of rotting and burning flesh that came out of this valley. And even before that, what Jesus was, was getting to and where the weeping and gnashing of teeth phrase comes from is during the captivity time period of the Babylonians and the Chaldeans and the Assyrians... The, the people of God learned some of the customs and practices of these foreign people. One of them was worshiping the God of Molech. Well, the way they would worship the God of Molech was through child sacrifice. And the way they would sacrifice their children is they would burn them in the valley of Henna, burning these children alive. And we have two stories in the Old Testament of Old Testament kings doing this here in the Valley of Hena. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. He did not do what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord his God as his ancestor David had done. Instead, he followed the example of the kings of Israel, even sacrificing his own son in the fire. And then also Manasseh also sacrificed his own son in the the fire, what they would do is they would take these children, six, seven, eight years old, and they would drive the children with whips into the flames, into the valley of Hinnah. And these children, were, they were little kids, they were terrified. They would have the whip upon their back, the agony, the pain. They would have the flames upon their skin. These kids were so terrified that they would weep and they would wail. And the historian said that you could actually hear these children gnashing their teeth as they were burning alive, just the pain and the agony and the torment these kids were going through. I want you to understand, Jesus specifically used this word to describe hell. What Jesus was doing is saying, I'm trying to give you the best illustration I can of what this place is going to be like. I'm trying to make this as graphic and as real as I possibly can because I don't want anyone going there. Let me give you a ludicrous illustration. If you're driving home today and you pulled into your neighborhood and you saw your neighbor's house on fire, what would you do? Well, you would do what any one of us would do. We'd immediately call 911 to make sure that the, the fire department was alerted, to make sure somebody was on their way. If at all possible, if safe, we would go into the house and see if there's anybody in there asleep or, or passed out. We would do whatever we could to try to save or rescue anybody in that burning house. Any one of us would do that. It's just the right, noble, honorable thing to do. Well, the reason why I said this is a ludicrous illustration is because none of you, if you were driving home today and saw your neighbor's house on fire, none of you would turn to your wife and say, you know, somebody else will take care of it. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't say, you know, somebody else will call 911. It's, it's not our responsibility. It's not our problem. None of you would do that. 
And I'm not making light of prayer, but you also wouldn't look at your wife and say, well, let's, let's just pray for them. And I'm not against prayer, but, but you wouldn't do that. You would take action. Well, Paul says in Romans 10, how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? How can your neighbor believe in Christ if they've never heard about him? How can the person you work with that you sit next to every day at work, how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? See, your neighbor's house probably isn't on fire today, but do you realize your neighbor is? Who's going to warn them? Who's going to warn her? Because the reality is, if they don't know the Lord, if they don't have a relationship with God, according to the Bible, they're going to an eternal place that's going to be filled with torment. And that is the reality. If it wasn't the reality, we wouldn't even be here today. See, our goal is not trying to become good people. We know God chose every single human being. But the truth is, the only ones who escape hell are the ones that choose God. So let me end with this. Revelations 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. And I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. Do you realize every single one of us will stand before God one day? Now, what it's about to describe is the standing of those who don't believe. This is the judgment day. Now, those of us that are believers, we stand before a different throne that it talks about in another place in Revelations, but this is for those who don't believe. These are for people who don't know Jesus. And the books were open, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead. And all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the eternal hell. This is the second death. And anyone whose name was not recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Anyone whose name was not recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Which brings me to the most important question of the day. How do I get my name in the book of life? Anyone whose name is not recorded in the book of life is thrown into the lake of fire. How do I get my name in the book of life? See, that's my job as a pastor. My, my number one responsibility as a pastor is to prepare you for your last day on earth. Because every single one of you are going to have a last day on earth. And the question on that day is, is your name in the book of life? And how do you get your name in the book of life? Well, if you ask the average American, how do you go to heaven? How do you, you know, which is basically, how do you get your name in the book of life? What would they tell you? Well, you got to be a good person. You got to be a good person. You you live a good life. You do more good than you do bad. And and if you're a good person, then you're going to go to heaven. Well, John the Baptist, according to Jesus, was the greatest human being to ever live on planet earth. John said, born of woman, there's nobody better. Or Jesus said, born of woman, there's nobody better than John the Baptist. And you know what Jesus went on to say? John being the greatest human being to ever live wasn't good enough. He wasn't good enough. He would have still gone to hell. Without Jesus, John the Baptist would have gone to hell. And John was the greatest human being to ever live. So let me ask you a question. Are you better than John the Baptist? 
Because Jesus said John was the best person he ever knew. Are you better than John? Is your goodness better than John's goodness? Because John was the greatest human being to ever live. And Jesus said, John's not good enough. John would still go to hell without my gift. So the question is, have you received the gift? God will not impose it upon you. He gives you a gift and and he's paid for it. and, And not one person will ever go to hell because of their sin. The reason people go to hell is their unbelief. They don't receive the gift. They don't take the gift. Like the gift is sitting here. It's available to each and every one of you. It only works if you take it. God will not force it on you. He's not going to impose it on you. You have to receive the free gift of what he did on your behalf. And your goodness will never do it. You'll never be good enough. No matter how hard you try, you'll never, it has nothing to do with your goodness. It's nothing to do with how hard you work. It is the grace of Jesus Christ. He paid it for you. He took the penalty that you deserved so that by grace you could freely receive the gift. But you have to receive that gift. And so what I want to do is I'm going to invite everyone to close your eyes for a moment. And if you'd like to receive that gift today, you've never received that gift before. And it simply means you give your life to Jesus. You you make him the Lord of your life and you receive the gift of his grace. And you know where you're at. This has to be a decision of your free will. It's not something that happens to you when you were baptized as a baby. It's not something that happens to you because you went through a couple classes and, you know, passed a test. You have to actively receive this gift. Your parents can't receive it for you. Your church can't receive it for you. Your wife or your husband can't receive this gift for you. You have to receive this gift. Exercising your free will. So if you have never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and received the gift of his grace, I'd like to pray with you. It's just a very simple prayer. I'm not going to ask you to stand up or come to the front. And you don't even have to take this first step out loud. You can pray this in your heart today. Because if you'll pray this in your heart and you'll believe it, you'll take the next steps. But if you're here and you'd say, you know what, I need to. And this isn't for those of you that are, that are you know, you got really scared during the message and you just want to make sure. Like, I just need to make sure, so I'm going to pray again. I'm not talking to you. Just accept by faith that you're saved. Don't, 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 get, you know, don't get shaken every time you heard a message like this. This is for those of you that really don't know. And you need to receive that gift today because you've got to take that step. So with nobody looking around, just so that I know who's praying with me, would you slip up your hand and say, I'm going to join you in the prayer today. Just right now, raise your hand quickly. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Is there anybody else? Anybody else that says, you know, I'd like to pray with you. Thank you. Is anybody else? I appreciate those hands. Here's the prayer. Jesus, today, I receive you as my Lord. Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner and I am lost without your grace. Will you forgive me? And then lastly, Jesus, thank you that right now in heaven, the Bible says the angels opened the book of life and the angels wrote my name down. And the day I stand before you, my name will be found in the book of life. Jesus, 
thank you. Thank you. In your name, amen. For those of you that join me in that simple prayer, I want to encourage you to take one more step. On your connection card, there's two boxes. One says, I'm committing my life to Christ. One says, I'm renewing my commitment to Christ. Whatever decision your prayer reflected, we'd like to know about it so that we could pray for you. It's the greatest decision you'll ever make. We'll also send you an email that gives you some next steps of what it means to to really follow him. I encourage you to use your at the movies cards to invite somebody next week. If, If there's somebody that you're concerned about, bring it. This entire month of October is designed to introduce people to Jesus so that their names can be put in the book of life. The the whole month is evangelism. That's why we do the At The Movies series. It's a tool for you to use to reach your friends, your neighbors, your family, and you want them to hear the message of Jesus. Bring them next week. We'd love love to share the message of Jesus with them. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? Father, this series has not been fun or easy, but it's what people asked for. They wanted messages on these subjects. They've had questions and they've wrestled. And I pray that we've honored their request by answering it according to your word. To what the Bible actually says about these subjects. I pray that it'll give them new meaning, new purpose. In light of the truth and the revelation from these messages. That they'll apply it to their life and live more passionately, live differently. And understand the responsibility that each and every one of us have as a follower of you to share this life with others. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Have a great week, everybody.